0: Chapter six of the Smoke Eaters by Harvey J. O'Higgins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Corrigan's Promotion Corrigan had been the motorman of a Metropolitan Electric car, and he had been discharged from the service of the Street Railway Company for wrecking his trolley in a collision with a fire engine. He had felt that the fire department owed him a living, having deprived him of one and the political influence of his brother-in-law helped the commissioner to pay the debt. The railway thereby lost a motorman, who could run down a crowded street with a controller full ahead, and who cracked his gongs frequently by dancing frantic fandangos on the ringers of them when the heavy goods trucks got on his tracks. And the department gained a probationer, who loved excitement as a collie-dog loves an open field, who could handle a forty-pound scaling-ladder from the shoulder, with the muscles that had skidded car-wheels when he screwed down brakes and who went up a windowed wall or took the thirty-five-foot jump into the life-net in probationers drills at headquarters with the smile of the days when he had played cops and crooks through an east-side lumber-yard his term of probation was all pure sport for him he spent his days at headquarters and his nights at the engine-house in Harlem, to which he had been previously assigned He worked off ten pounds of fat, and he clipped his drooping black moustache until it stood out in a fierce bristle under his huge beak of a nose. His comrades called him Bull, and he pawed at them in a bear cub playfulness that left them bruised about the forearms. He was happy. He had but one cause of dissatisfaction. The Harlem Engine House was not a school of arduous training, and he wished for a more exciting life. He saw a prospect of it when he received his appointment as a fourth grade fireman detailed to fill a vacancy in Captain Meaghan's command. And he chewed the roots of his moustache with one corner of his mouth, and smiled crookedly out of the other. "'You'll straighten your mug before you've finished with that,' they warned him. He straightened it forthwith, in a grin that curled evenly on both sides of his nose. "'I guess you're right, all right,' he said, and nodded. He reported for duty on the following day, and Captain Meaghan looked him over with an official glare. He saluted clumsily and stood stiff, knowing the captain by reputation as a gruff disciplinarian. Meaghan said, "'How much do you weigh?' One hundred ninety, sir,' Corrigan answered. He groaned. "'One-ninety? Do you know that truck weighs near ten thousand pounds already?' Corrigan regarded the hook-and-ladder truck aggrievedly. He had never considered the weight of a truck before, but it struck him that this one had gone to gross excess. One ninety, Megan Meaghan snorted. "'I s'pose they think I'm running an ox-cart. Some of you'll have to get out and walk pretty soon.' This was evidently sarcasm. Corrigan smiled at it with uneasiness. Meaghan demanded, "'What did they send you here for?' I didn't ask, Corrigan answered, simply. The captain eyed him with suspicion. Well, he said, you carry a good hook, don't you? Corrigan squinted down his nose and reddened. A regular tin-cutter, Meaghan snarled. A regular can-opener, I guess that's why they sent you, eh? Thought you'd be good at makin' smoke vents in a tin roof, eh? Corrigan muttered an unintelligible answer at his feet well the captain concluded savagely we'll soon smoke the shine off it fur ye he turned to his lieutenant here gallagher show this man his quarters you'll go on the bright work d'ye understand corrigan understood that he was to have the care of shining brass of the sliding poles and the truck he said i do and followed the lieutenant upstairs with an angry swing of the shoulders that would have meant a fight under other circumstances. That was his introduction to Captain Meaghan. There followed his meeting with the men of the company, a meeting that was a clumsy ceremony of handshakes and embarrassed gutturals. He was shown his cot in the bunk-room, and given the key of the closet for his clothes, and then he was left to shift for himself. He proceeded to inspect with due reverence the truck's equipment of ladders, hooks, and axes, shovels, picks, wrenches, mauls, bars, jimmies, forks, pipes, hand-lamps, respirators, battering-rams, and what not. He arranged his helmet and his turnout coat in the row of them on the bed ladders. He inquired for and located the cloth and chemical for polishing his bright work. He studied the list of fire-alarms, patted the horses, and smiled ingratiatingly at the jigger over the desk. It did not reply with an immediate signal, and he went upstairs again with an undiscouraged grin to wait for it. Within an hour it was known to every member of the company that the new man played a poorer game of checkers than Billy Parr even, who had a fatal weakness for leading from the double corner and that was the beginning of Corrigan's popularity with the blue shirts. Meaghan saw nothing in him except a hulking good nature which might easily be mistaken for the next of kin to stupidity. Corrigan lay awake the greater part of that night, listening in an excess of zeal for a fire-alarm that was not rung in. In the morning he was heavy lidded at roll-call, and the captain remarked it. A summons to a small fire that was black when the truck arrived on the scene of it brought Corrigan the last man to his place on the sidestep, and that was another mark against him. He made a good record when taps called the crew to their places at midday, but he closed his eyes while he was at watch on the desk in the afternoon, and the captain accused him of being asleep there. Corrigan did not argue, but he did worse. He sulked, and by the time he had turned in for the night, he was discouraged, angry and plainly marked for the captain's displeasure. He fell asleep with the small flame of the gas-bracket in the wall above him, burning an irritation in his eyes. The jigger exploded, its alarm. The lights swam in his head as he sprang from his bed and struggled into his trousers and high boots, drunk with sleep. He dropped down the pole to the main floor as if falling in a dream and staggered to catch the side step of the truck as it rolled out into the street in a dull rumble of pounding hoofs and thick voices a rush of the night air puffed into his face with the wet smell of a draught from a cellar and began to sing hollow in his ears like the croon in a shell so that the ride that followed seemed as confused as a nightmare the three horses straining in their collars the blown lights of the driver's lamps shining on the play of muscles in their sleek flanks, the bell ding-donging monotonously, and the silent men beside him on the step swaying as they finished their dressing, clinging to the side ladders of the jolting truck. His own hands did not seem to belong to him. They were at a great distance from him, on the ends of long arms. His helmet did not fit his head. He got one arm into his rubber coat, but the other could not find a second sleeve, and he was still fumbling for an armhole when the truck swung around a corner and he came on a street of smoke and fire engines and the hoarse bellowings of battalion chiefs and company foremen. He looked up from this turmoil to see smoke puffing from the middle windows of a five-story building that seemed immeasurably high in the darkness and the deceptive play of light his eye was caught by a glare of flames shining on the glasses of a window. The panes brightened and burst, clinking on the stone sills, and then a stream of water struck up to overwhelm this sudden brilliance in a cloud of smoke and steam. A rough hand caught the coat from him and swung him around. He heard Lieutenant Gallagher cry out, "'You won't need that!' Someone thrust a bar of cold metal into his bewildered clutch and shoved him forward he came to himself to find that he was stumbling across the cobblestones with a steel tool in his hand his head cleared he drew a long breath the men of company number zero were battering at the doors of the building adjoining that which was afire and he could see that both were wholesale clothing houses from their signboards both too were old he knew that they would be dry and unsafe and he knew that his crew had been ordered to make smoke vents in the roof. Then the door fell open, the crew disappeared in the doorway, and he followed at full tilt to blunder up the stairs behind a hand-lamp that shone in the darkness ahead of him. Smoke smarted in his eyes and burned in his nostrils. There was someone behind him hurrying him forward. He took the endless steps three at a bound, and raced along the hallways. And what with the excitement and the pleasure he took in it, his heartbeat seemed to lift him from his feet. He clambered, panting, up the ladder, through the scuttle, leaped a dividing parapet between the buildings, and attacked the tin roof with an eager jab of his tool. Around him, axe and hook and cutter, tore and stripped and splintered tin and rafters and the glass and sash of skylights, till the smoke began to curl upwards out of gaping holes in the roof and the men pushed back their helmets from their foreheads, and wiped the sweat from their eyes. Captain Meaghan was shouting orders at them from the top of the cornice, where he stood to watch the crew in the street below. They depended on him to warn them of danger from whatever direction they might be menaced, and they worked with as little apparent apprehension for their safety as farm laborers digging in a field at meaghan's command a ladder was dragged over the parapet and lowered into the skylight and gallagher and three men slid down it corrigan stood listening alertly with his eye on his captain as eager as a hound he heard the windows of the floor beneath crash into the street a draught of evil-smelling smoke drew up through the vents mighty thick down there someone behind him said and without turning he nodded as if the remark had been addressed to him. He watched Captain Meaghan lean over the cornice and bawl directions to Gallagher in the lower windows. He heard the answer come up thin and faint from below. There were anxious calls and answers across the roof, and he understood that one of Gallagher's men had been lost in the smoke. Meaghan hurried a rescuing party down the ladder, and Corrigan remained to chew at his moustache. When these men returned with Gallagher's missing fireman and laid him on the roof, three of the crew fanned him with their helmets, while Corrigan and the others, at Meaghan's orders, raised the ladder from the skylight and carried it over to the cornice where the captain stood. They lowered it over the front of the building till it hung by its hooks, and Lieutenant Gallagher and the other two men, with red and watering eyes, climbed up it from the windows and hauled it up after them, The captain turned from conversation with them, to order Long Tom Donnelly, to report that the roof was open, and that the fire was creeping along the floor below. "'Hurry him up! Hurry him up!' he shouted after him, and Corrigan felt a prickly heat of impatience strike up from the warm roof under his feet. There was an explosion that shook the building, and he recognized it as the puff of the backdraft. "'Just missed it! Lieutenant Gallagher said to little Fuchs. Fuchs wiped a wide grin with the back of his hand, and Corrigan smiled in sympathy. The sparks began to swirl up in the smoke from the vents. Captain Meaghan, cursing the engine companies, cried, Gallagher! Take half the men and report below! We're doing no good here! Corrigan watched the lieutenant with a wistful eye, but Gallagher did not see he signalled with a wave of the hand to four of the men who stood together near the cornice, and they trailed after him nonchalantly. Corrigan swallowed a lump of disappointment in his throat, and shifted on his feet. They stood leaning on their tools, while the smoke reddened with the growth of the flames beneath it. And to Corrigan it seemed as slow to watch as the sunrise that had used to end his night of duty on the platform of his trolley-car it was an interminable interval of inaction. He patted his heel on the tin, as if on the ringer of a gong. ''Hell!'' Meaghan cried. Corrigan growled in unconscious echo of him. ''Hell!'' Meaghan wheeled on him, and then, at last, there was the sound of voices from the neighbouring roof, and they looked to see a pipe-man lifting the nozzle of an empty hose from the scuttle there. Corrigan ran with the others to help and they drew the hose from the trap in the roof till it stretched like an angle-worm plucked from a clod. There was a shout of orders given, and repeated, a breathless pause, and then the line swelled with the rush of water, and spat its stream into the raw wound of tin and wood. Corrigan shook the spray from his eyes and ran laughing to lighten up the heavy line, pulling and lifting the pulsing body of the hose from the scuttle and carrying it across the roof as gently as if he were afraid a rough hand would break it. And when he reached the skylight where the fire had showed, he found the smoke black, the top of a ladder pointing up from it, and the last of the pipemen disappearing in the cloud. Following the best traditions of the department, they had gone to fight the fire from the inside. Captain Meaghan cried, "'Well, boys, there's nothing more to do here but the washing down better get below again. Corrigan looked up to the sudden realisation that the fun was over. It had only just begun, and already it was over for him. He blinked up at the clear moonlit sky that showed through the drift of smoke, filling his burning eyes with the cooling light. The men were carrying their tools and ladders across the roof to take them below. He turned to follow them reluctantly. But the pounding on the roof, the shock of the backdraft and the running to and fro of the heavy crew had had an effect on the old timbers that had not been reckoned with. A beam cracked like the report of a pistol. The captain turned with an oath of alarm. Corrigan, looking back over his shoulder, saw the great water-tank, that had been supported across the lower angle of the parapet, fall in the tremor of a crackling earthquake, that sunk the weakened roof under his feet like the deck of a rolling ship. He sprang for the parapet and leaped upon it as his footing gave way beneath him the rush of water hissed above the snapping of the timbers he heard the men cry out in horror and he turned to find a dead silence broken by a low groan from the wreckage hidden in the smoke the three pipe men who had gone down the skylight ladder were imprisoned there all the truck men had escaped there was no confusion captain meaghan called out his orders quickly and coolly to one to report to the chief, to another to lead up another line of hose, to a third to bring the lifelines from the truck, to a fourth to warn the men below that the whole weight of the roof rested now on a floor that was already burning. But Corrigan did not wait for any orders. He had turned, with the instinct of the undrilled, to make an individual effort to save the men who would be slowly roasted between burning floor and burning roof snatching an axe from the nearest hand he ran along the parapet to the cornice and began to creep down the incline of the tin roofing into the smoke he heard the captain shout back there you three's enough and then the smoke blew over him in a wave that blinded him and choked him and seemed even to fill his ears so that he heard nothing more The tin sheathing grew hot under his hands. His throat seemed to contract convulsively, so that he could not breathe. He crawled forward desperately, and the slope steepened, and he pitched headlong, sliding on his stomach. A groan sounded in the pit ahead of him. He turned to get feet foremost, thrust himself forward, and slid down on heels and elbows, clinging to his axe. He dropped over a rough edge of tin that cut his hands his feet struck something soft among the timbers and he knew from the moan that answered that he had found one of the men what followed was never clear afterwards in his memory he was like a drowning man held below water in an entanglement of wreckage gasping and suffocating and fighting in the darkness to get himself free he found that the piped man lay unconscious with a leg caught under a beam and when he struggled to raise the beam the man made a dry clucking in his mouth like a child in a fever Carrigan got his great hands under the joist and strained in vain to raise the broken end of it till the cords in his back pained at their roots then he fell on it furiously with his axe his head swimming and the blows cut into the timber with a sound that grew fainter and fainter to him so that they seemed like the strokes of a lumberman's axe in the woods at a distance he was growing sick and weak with the heat the axe became so heavy that he could hardly lift it his knees began to loosen and then there was the roar of a whirlpool in his head and he sank on his face and fainted meanwhile captain meaghan on the parapet of the adjoining roof alternately cursed corrigan the unfortunate pipe men the roof the fire and his own keen eyes that had failed to note the insecurity of the water tank he stamped on the ledge like a sailor on his deck and the language he used was from the deep seas he had given his orders there was nothing to do now but to wait and it was a thing which meaghan had never learned to do when Gallagher returned with the lifelines, the captain flung himself on the lieutenant and snatched the lines from him. He tied one quickly under his arms, attached the other to his wrist, and ordered the men to lower him to Corrigan. They braced themselves for his weight. He threw a leg over the parapet. Hurry up there, he shouted to the pipe men, appearing with the hose. Hurry up there! Train her on the blaze in the middle. All right, lower away. A shower of water from above revived Corrigan in the smoking debris. His helmet had fallen off, and the cool stream poured on his head. He struggled to his feet, hating the smoke and the heat, with the personal hatred of a soldier for the enemy who has wounded him. He fell on the obstinate joist with empty hands. ye would, would you? he kept muttering. "You would, would you?" fighting with the beam in his madness, until his hands were numb with bruises and then he straightened up and threw himself at it in a frenzy, and his huge bulk came down like a sack of sand on the end of it, and finished the work his axe had begun. The rest was a delirium, years of a delirium, in which he finally got the pipe-man free, and passed him to Captain Meaghan, who appeared through the smoke from nowhere, and tied a rope around him and stood him up despite his protests. The roof fell from his feet, and he seemed to soar up miles struggling he thought he had been tied to a balloon and he was talking foolishness when the men lifted him over the parapet and laid him on the roof he was saved and he had saved the only pipeman who escaped the floor had fallen with the others just as aid had come but he knew nothing of all that, until the following day, when he found himself lying on his back between the cool sheets of a hospital cot, and passed his bandaged hands over the bandages on his face. He heard Lieutenant Gallagher say, "'He's all right. A bit singed, I guess. How are his eyes?' A strange voice answered, "'We'll know to-morrow.' Corrigan said weakly, "'They're all right. I can see down here.' And laid his hand on the side of his nose where there was a glimmer of light below the dressings. The lieutenant laughed. Couldn't bandage over that nose. Be quiet now. We want you back to the house as soon as you get on your feet. The chiefs promoted you. Corrigan tried to understand what he meant, but the pain in his head prevented him. He asked, Where'd you get the balloon? They called him Balloon at the house when he reported for duty two weeks later. But he had entered on the roll of merit, and his pay had been increased, and his name was large in the land. Captain Meaghan scowled at him, in a fierce congratulation. "'You should have waited for orders, Corrigan,' he said gruffly. "'Yes, sir,' he apologized. "'I didn't know.' "'No harm done,' Meaghan said. "'You'll be on the ladder committee. THERE'S ANOTHER MAN ON THE BRIGHT WORK. END OF CHAPTER 6